Well, good morning. Um, for those of you that might not know me, my name is Mike Vanderlinden, and I'm a member here at Potomac Hills who happens to also be a seminary student. That's right, I'm working on my Master's of Divinity, and hopefully uh, I'll be able to graduate next year. Won't that be exciting? <laughs> well, this morning we're going to be in Exodus again. We're going to be in chapter 30. You know, we've been going through Exodus in this sermon series titled The Glory of the Lord. We've seen God deliver Israel from the bondage of slavery, deliver them out of, uh, out of uh, Egypt. We've seen that God has protected them and provided for them as they've moved through the wilderness, and are, he's continuing to do that, right? He's given them instructions on how they should live rightly before him in the Ten Commandments. And now, as we move through chapters 25 through 31, God's been giving Moses instructions on how to come into his presence. It's instructions on what today we would call as worship. These instructions have centered on the tabernacle and all the stuff associated with the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, the priests, and their garments, which we heard about two weeks ago. And also about how the priests are consecrated so that they can actually serve the living God. That was last week. Now this week, these instructions uh, might start to seem a little tedious, right? All of the things about how to make the garments and how to consecrate the priests. And it can be tedious, especially if we don't have the right reason or the right purpose behind God giving us these instructions. So let me ask you something this morning. When was the last time you were asked to give someone some instructions? Now, it might have been instructions on how to cook something or how to build something or even instructions how to use some sort of new technology like a smartphone or maybe even some of the new apps like Facebook or Snapchat. Now, if you don't know what Snapchat is, you're going to have to ask somebody that's like 20 or under, I think. Grab them after church. Of course, it didn't always used to be that way. Um, it used to be if you wanted to know how to do something, you had to ask somebody for instructions, right? Now, today, I know you don't even have to do that. Sometimes you can just go on Google or go on YouTube and find instructions yourself about how to do something. But again, it didn't always used to be that way. Like today, everybody uses their cell phones to help them get where they're going, right? You want to go somewhere, you jump on Google, find the address, just follow the GPS instructions that come up. But you know, you used to have to give people directions on how to get places. So what if someone asked you for directions to your favorite restaurant, for example, or a nearby park where you're going to meet the play, or the place you work, or hey, maybe even the church you attend? What if you had an important meeting you had to get to? You'd want good directions, wouldn't you? And you'd want to follow them, wouldn't you, so that you could get there? Well, what if you were inviting someone over to your house? You'd want to give them good directions too, wouldn't you? And hopefully you're giving them good directions because you want them to get there safely and without too many wrong turns. So if you give me directions to your house and I end up on a dead-end road, I'll know but you don't want me to come over. Well, the key to good directions, the reason you want good directions is because you want to be together. After all, instructions are meant to be helpful. 
Here's why that's important this morning for us. As we continue through these chapters in Exodus, these chapters with all these instructions on the tabernacle and the priests and worship, if we're not careful, we can start to think that these instructions are really too much. They're too detailed. They're too over the top. But God is really trying to give us all these instructions to make it difficult for us to come close to him. When actually, he's doing exactly the opposite. In giving Moses these instructions, God is actually drawing his people to himself, calling them to come close, instructing them to enter into his presence and revealing to them how it's even possible at all. That's what I want you to start to consider this morning as we look at these instructions that Moses is receiving from God. These instructions are meant to draw us closer to God in worship as God himself tells us he will meet with us. So take your Bibles or your smartphone or your Bible app and turn to Exodus chapter 30. Now, if you're here this morning and you're new to the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible right in the front right after the book of Genesis. Beginning of verse 1, it says, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubic shall be its length. And a cubic shall be its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side, and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations." You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of his sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, these are holy things. Holy things, not uh, because of what they are, but because of who you are. And as these things are consecrated to be into your presence, they are made holy. And so, Lord, as we are consecrated to be in your presence, we are being made holy. Be made holy so that we can meet with you. Lord, it is hard for us to believe that. So teach us, Lord, uh, that you are holy. Teach us, Lord, uh, that you are making us holy, even though we are sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. That is my proposition this morning, that the tabernacle worship is meant to bring us into God's presence so that he can meet with us. Because meeting with God is what is happening in worship. And here's what we're going to find this morning. In this first section, we're going to find 
that in worship we must acknowledge who God is. In the next section, we're going to acknowledge, uh, or learn to acknowledge uh, in worship who we are. In the third section, we're going to be acknowledging what God is doing even today. And in the last section, we're going to be acknowledging that worship is about doctrine and experience. So how does the altar of incense help us to acknowledge who God is? Well, first of all, although the altar of incense is pretty small, a cubit, by the way, is only 18 inches, that makes the whole table 18 inches square and 36 inches tall. But for such a small table, it's still pretty impressive, isn't it? The instructions given to Moses are to cover the whole thing with gold. Now the reason for that is that the closer you get to God, the more precious the materials are that are in his presence. You might be able to use bronze in the outer court, but only gold inside the tabernacle itself. Only gold in God's presence. It's a sign that God is holy, that he is majestic, that he is more important than other things, and that he is worthy of worship. Second, the location of the altar of incense is very important. Did you catch where the altar of incense sits in the description? It's in the holy place, just outside the uh, just outside the mercy seat, just outside the holy of holies. Now, as a reminder, there's basically three areas associated with the tabernacle. There's the outer court, which is an area that's enclosed, and that's where the people would bring their sacrifices to the priest. On the eastern end of that area is where the altar of burnt sacrifices is. In the middle is the bronze basin for cleansing. And on the western end is the tabernacle itself. Now, the early early uh, tabernacle was a tent-like structure. It had two rooms. One was called the holy place. This is where the table of showbread and the seven candled menorah and the altar of incense are. The other room was called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is with the mercy seat resting on top of it. Now between these two rooms and between the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat is this veil hanging from floor to ceiling. Its function was to separate the two rooms. Now the altar of incense hanging or sitting just outside of that veil is where the priest would come to burn incense. Now, he might not have been able to see the mercy seat through the veil, but he certainly knew it was there. And it was towards this mercy seat that he would offer the incense. Now, the priest did actually get to see the mercy seat at least once a year. That was on the Day of Atonement. Now, on the Day of Atonement, he would actually go all the way into the Holy of Holies. And that's where he would burn the incense. Listen to what it says in Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13, about instructing the priest to do this. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Any guess to what the priest is praying as he offers the incense before the mercy seat? See, having the altar of incense just outside the veil doesn't just say that God is holy. 
It also reminds us that God and man remain separated because of sin. In fact, not only does the priest have to make atonement in the Holy of Holies, he has also to make atonement on the horns of the altar of incense once a year. In every sense, in every sense, the closer you get to a holy God, the more dangerous that proposition can become. And keep in mind that the priest approaches the altar of incense after the sacrifice of an animal. So even after the sacrifice of the mediating prayer uh, and the mediating prayer of the priest, he's still asking God to be merciful. That's because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what it says in Hebrews 10, verse 4, that the blood and bulls of uh, the blood of bulls and goats does not actually take away sin. It makes the tabernacle a, a type, a symbol of what's to come. So we have the altar of incense pointing us to a holy God, and yet in order to approach that holy God at the altar of worship, right, we have to acknowledge we are sinners. We have to acknowledge that there's a problem, that there's a veil between us, and we need to ask God to deal with our sin. We see that in the next section in the instructions for collecting the census tax. Let's read that beginning at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. You know, the fact that we have to make atonement for our, our lives is mentioned twice in this passage. Now, to make sense of this, it would be good to put the census tax into Old Testament context, especially because our American context might skew our thinking. You see, in America, we have a census bureau, right? I actually went to their website, and here's what it said. It said, our, our goal, our purpose, is to uh, obtain quality data about the nation's people and economy and governments and communities. It says they use this data to create programs and distribute monies and try to determine the state of the country in general. We could argue whether they actually accomplish that or not. But that's not what the census in Israel was for. The census in Israel had only one purpose, to see how big of an army they could muster, to see how many fighting men they could gather together to go and fight for the Lord. The first census of the people takes place, actually, in the second year after Israel left Egypt. The account is given to us in the first chapter of the book of Numbers. Did you know that's actually where the book of Numbers gets its name? Right? From the census or the numbering of the people? It opens and closes 
with the number of the people. Here's what it says in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And we're told in verse 46, when the census was completed, they had 603,550 fighting men. And that didn't count the Levites because they were exempted. Now what do you think might be Israel's temptation after the census is taken? What do you think, if you were the leader of the people, your temptation would be after the census was taken? Well, don't you think maybe they would start to think a little more of themselves than they ought to? We call that pride. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, that pride is the idea of not just being satisfied with who God has made you to be, but thinking that somehow who you are is something of itself apart from God. And pride lets you start to think that you can fight your own battles, that you can secure your own victories and maybe even triumph over any adversary. To counter this temptation, God gives them the instructions that everyone capable of fighting has to give an offering, an offering that would remind them that rescue is accomplished by the Lord's hand alone. Rescue is accomplished by the Lord's hand alone, not theirs. Now, let me give you a simple example of pride. See, pride doesn't just say, I can do it. Pride says, I am so good, I don't need no help from no one. Now, you've all seen this, right? You've all been out in the driveway. Somebody pulls in with groceries. They've got a whole bunch of stuff to carry inside. And so you ask them very politely, you need some help? And they say, oh, no, no, I, I've got it. And so they grab as many bags as they can with one hand, and they grab as many bags as they can in the other hand. And one, with that one little prideful thought they have left, they slide their pinky finger in that gallon jug of milk, and they say, my pinky can take it. Well, what happens to that jug of milk? About halfway to the house, their pinky can't take it anymore, and they drop it, and it explodes all over the driveway. And then to make things worse, they themselves explode, saying something like, why didn't you help me? Maybe you've never experienced that. I'm not saying I have either. <laughs> See, but the census tax is about more than milk. It's about the ransom required to atone for your very life. An atonement that really only God can provide. In Psalm 49, verse 7, beginning of verse 7, it reads, Truly no man, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. In the Old Testament, they offered up this shekel as a symbol that they needed to be rescued. In the Gospel of the New Testament, we hear that Jesus has offered up something better than the shekel, 
more valuable than the shekel. He's offered up his own life as a ransom for yours, as a ransom for mine, as a ransom for ours. That means there is really no longer any need for the sinful for the sinful pride of the strong pinky. See, setting aside pride is only the beginning, though. There's still more trouble in paradise because after we've acknowledged God as holy and worthy of worship, and after we admit, we put aside pride and admit that we're sinners that need God's rescue, we still have to acknowledge that there is an ongoing battle with sin and that God is doing something about it in our lives. What is it that He's doing? He's dealing with it. He's dealing with that sin that clings to us so tightly that we can't seem to get rid of it. And we call that sanctification. It's an ongoing cleansing where we become more and more dead to sin and more and more alive to Christ. Let's look at verse 17 where it talks about the bronze basin, a symbol of daily cleansing in tabernacle worship. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to bring a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring, throughout their generations. So where's this bronze basin again? It's setting between the altar of sacrifice on the east end of the outer court and the tabernacle on the west end. And the priest would use the basin for washing after sacrificing offerings but before entering the tabernacle. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, Dave Burris did say last week that sacrificing an animal was a messy business. But washing up didn't really make them cleaner when it comes to sin, did it? Let me explain. Now, we've already mentioned that inside the tabernacle, both the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant are sprinkled with blood once a year on the Day of Atonement as a sign of the need for a final atoning sacrifice. In Hebrews 9, beginning of verse 19, this is what it says, When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, that's back here in Exodus, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, so the blood itself is not a problem per se. The blood is really on everything. And it's there as a part of the symbol of the sacrificial system. So if washing it off doesn't make the priest cleaner when it comes to sin, I'm sorry, but uh, it doesn't make him cleaner, but the daily washing does help him to experience the cleansing work of the blood in a physical way. 
Does that make sense to you? It doesn't actually make him cleaner. It's the blood that made him cleaner. But it helps him to understand the cleaning of the blood as he cleanses himself to go before the Lord. Now, I'm not sure how many of you read the article that Pastor Silvernail posted on Facebook a couple of days ago, or maybe last week sometime. It was titled this, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. It was a satirical blog post at the Babylon Bee about how ridiculous it is to think you can't forgive yourself after God has forgiven you. But the reality is for many of us, and probably for some of us, maybe many of us here this morning right now, the issue of shame is a real danger. We might be able to accept the fact that we're positionally clean, the blood has covered us, but we have a hard time understanding that we're being washed with water on a daily basis and experiencing that positional righteousness that we have. So just as pride can keep us from acknowledging God as holy and worthy of praise, just as pride can keep us from acknowledging we are sinners in need of rescue, shame over the ongoing battle with sin can leave us feeling dirty. It's kind of like catching one of those awful things called a stink bug, right? You try to pick the pesky thing up safely so you can get rid of it, and you fail, and it sprays that recognizable stink all over your hands. So you go to the sink, and what do you do? You wash your hands with soap, with really strongly scented soap. And yet, even though, you, even though you've done that, there's still this lingering scent of stink bug on your smell, on your hands, and you just can't get rid of it. The gospel sometimes, we can think it's like that. We've come to Christ, we, we know he's cleansed us, we know we're clean, but our remaining struggle with sin leaves us feeling a little unsure of whether we smell good enough to come into worship. Well, for those of, those, uh, those of us, me included sometimes, struggling with this need, the reminder that cleansing by blood and the washing of water, which does have some ties into baptism in the New Testament, uh, New Testament are sufficient. They're sufficient. Again, turning to Hebrews, it says, Therefore, in chapter 10, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's not about what you're doing. It's about what Christ has done. That's the gospel. The gospel message is that Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to make you right with God so that you can have confidence to come into his presence. God wants to meet with you. So in worship, we need to acknowledge that God is holy. And when we know he's holy, it's okay for us to acknowledge that we're sinners because we know then that we're going to acknowledge that he's cleansing us and that he has cleansed us. But we also have to acknowledge in worship 
that worship is about both doctrine and experience. I'm saying doctrine and experience because in the Reformed tradition, it's sad to say, I think sometimes, we're heavy on doctrine and light on experience. We're heavy on doctrine and light on experience. But here we see that both are true. We need to know the truth that God is holy and that even though we're sinners, he's cleansing us. But you know, they smelt the incense. They saw the smoke rising up over the mercy seat and covering it. There is something about experience that's true about worship. So let's read this last section where it talks about the composition of the anointing oil and incense. Beginning at verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices. Again, that idea that only the finest is allowed to be in the tabernacle. Of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels. And of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane. And 500 of, of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And a hit of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense. And the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, you shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stock tea and anica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall uh, there be an equal part. And make an incense, blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. And the instance that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use a perfume shall be cut off from the people. Well, if you didn't think that instructions for worship were over the top, now's another chance. God is giving instructions about the smallest of details, even down to the type of oil and the incense that's used in worship. And along with that comes some warnings too. If the Israelites misuse these elements, they're going to be cut off from the people. It's pretty strong stuff. And maybe a little foreign to us today, I mean, we haven't used any incense or oil in our worship today. But there are two things we can learn from this section this morning. First, our church believes in what is called the regulatory principle. Now that sounds pretty technical, right? It basically just means that we worship God based on the instructions that he gives us, not in any way we might think is okay. 
Second, our church believes that corporate worship is an important activity for the body of Christ, not for outsiders, although outsiders are welcome. Worship itself is for the body. And although there's a place in life for private worship and for family worship, corporate worship must play a prominent role in the life of the church. Now let me explain how I think this might play out each week in church. Um, in case you didn't know, church doesn't just happen. It just doesn't appear every Sunday morning. Now first, a text for the sermon is picked out, and it's usually picked out well in advance. Be interested to see how far Dr. Silvernell has our sermons planned out for the next year. My guess is he's into 2017 already. <laughs> there we go. This will be the centerpiece of worship, this text for the sermon. And that makes it the meeting, the centerpiece for our meeting with God. Then someone, Dave Doors, will plan out the music. The idea is often to let our singing be a response to what God is revealing about himself or about us in worship. Worship is a dialogue. It's a meeting. All right, so here's an example. When we experience God's forgiveness, we can then respond with thanksgiving. And the music is worked out so that someone can plan that response to be a thankful, a thanksgiving response. Then someone will plan out the creeds or the prayers. And all of this is meant to help lead us through worship in a way that glorifies God and edifies God's people. Now, these things might not be spoken each and every week to us as formal instructions, but they do act as a roadmap to the corporate worship God commands in his word. So that when we follow these unspoken instructions, we're able to worship corporately in unison. And that's an experience that you can't get anywhere else. This corporate identity where we come together is an experience that you can't get anywhere else. Now, let me tell you where I see this working itself out. But before I do, I just want to, have you ever heard the saying that when a preacher starts to make things a little too personal, he goes beyond preaching to meddling? So I'm going to step over here and meddle just a little. All right? Like I said, there's a, there's a lot of prayer and discernment that goes into the preparation of our worship service. And we actually get to enjoy the benefits of those, of all that work as we sit here enjoying worship, hopefully taking part in our hearts. Well, let's just take the music, for example. It's supposed to be a bridge between what we're hearing God say and how we're responding. Sometimes the songs are slow. Sometimes the songs are quiet. Sometimes they're fast and they're upbeat. That's because each song is meant to convey a different response. Now, what if an upbeat song was specifically picked by our leaders, our worship leaders, uh, to display a, an idea of corporate joy? Corporate joy over salvation. Cor corporate joy over God's protection. Corporate joy over his daily care. And what if they plan for that upbeat response as part of that response that's supposed to be joyful, to include clapping as a sound of our joy. Part of the unspoken directions meant to keep us in unison. 
What's our response? What should our response be? Now, now before you answer, I'm going to let you know a little secret. You might see me clapping here sometimes, but most of the time I don't feel like clapping. Yeah, most of the time I don't feel like clapping either. But I have been convinced that worship is about doctrine and experience, not about doctrine and feelings. Right? So if the leaders are instructing me to clap, well, I'm going to follow their lead and I'm going to clap. And to be honest, it would be a much more joyful experience if more people were clapping. Well, like I say, worship is meant to be both doctrinal and experience. And like most Reformed churches, we're heavy on doctrine and lighter on experience. You see, God wants us to arrive all of us to arrive at the same destination and to worship together. He wants us to be at the same meeting at the same time. And in case you have forgotten, this meeting is the most important meeting of your whole life. And it's taking place in the most important place there is, the very mercy seat of God. That's where we find out that God is holy, that we are sinners, and that God is cleansing us from that sin. And there's no other place to find that. Every other place leads to being cut off from God's people. In Exodus chapter 30, God is bringing Israel into his presence. He's not trying to keep them away. He's making it clear through these instructions that he wants to meet them. And he wants to meet them in the Holy of Holies. Now in the tabernacle, that wasn't possible, was it? Only the priest got to go into the Holy of Holies. But the message of the gospel, the message of Christ's atoning work, is that the cross has provided us access into the Holy of Holies so that with the priest, we can meet him there. Worship, meeting with God, is about who we're with, not so much what we're doing. So that means worship's not about coming into the auditorium, or I must admit, not even about whether you clap or not. It's about coming into the very presence of God our Father and delighting in Him. So do you believe that God wants you in His presence? Do you believe that He longs to have you come near to Him? Do you believe that God longs to have you draw close to Him? even though you're a sinner. There's two things we've looked at this morning that I believe hold us back from believing that. And that's pride and shame. You see, pride doesn't want to acknowledge that God is holier than you or that you're sinful. And so it excludes you from worship. Shame doesn't want to accept the fact that God is cleansing you and has cleansed you from an evil conscience. And so it excludes you from worship. You see, the difference between tabernacle worship and New Testament worship is found right here in this gospel point. In the wilderness, there is this constant reminder through daily sacrifice and offerings and the veil and the day of atonement that sin continues to separate man from God. While the priest serves as a mediator, there's still a whole lot of ceremony, right, that must be followed. And the people have to stand far off, not just outside the Holy of Holies, but not even in the tabernacle, only in the outer court. 
Now think about that. Most of Israel during worship, they're still kept outside. Only the leaders, only the priests get to go into the Holy of Holies and into the Holy Place. But the Gospel says that's not the case anymore. It says that Christ has come, and now the earthly veil has been replaced with the heavenly veil of Christ's flesh, giving us access to the Father. So wouldn't it be silly? Isn't it silly for us to remain far off, worshiping from some faraway distance due to some self-imposed veil and outer court? I mean, imagine next week if you came into church when you went to walk in the doors of the auditorium, you saw there was a big sign on all the doors, and it said in great big red letters, no entry, leaders only. And then underneath there, in black letters, it says, congregates must worship from the hallway. Now, doesn't that seem ridiculous? But I, I need to ask you, how many of you right now even though you are physically here in the auditorium, how many of you, spiritually speaking, due to pride or shame, are still standing in the hallway? I'm asking you that because that's the question that kept coming up for me as I was working through Exodus. You see, there's lots of times when you might see me sitting over here. Oh, I'm here, and I'm singing the songs, and I'm reciting the creeds, and I'm taking notes, and that's right, I might even be clapping. But spiritually, I'm standing in the hallway. Right? It really shouldn't be that way, should it? We shouldn't be standing in the hallway. We should be here, coming into the presence of God. God's ultimate purpose in giving you instructions through the message of the gospel, revealed in shadow and in type, even here in tabernacle worship, is to bring us into his presence and proclaim to us his desire to be in relationship with us. His desire to be in relationship with us. So I say to you this morning, unless you are completely convinced that God is glorified when you, that's right, when you are physically and spiritually and emotionally present during worship, you're never going to fully worship. You're always going to stand far off. You may sing and read and listen and take notes and, dare I say it, maybe even clap. But in all the ways that really count the most, you'll still be standing in the hallway. Say hi to me when you see me out there. The tabernacle was a shadow of things to come. And when the Son of God came, he brought with him a fuller revelation of the gospel. A revelation that tells us that Jesus is holy and worthy of worship. A revelation that tells us that Jesus has redeemed sinners like us. A revelation that tells us Jesus is cleansing us and making us holy each and every day. That's called sanctification. Finally, a revelation that tells us a really wonderful thing, that God wants to meet us and he's making us holy so that that's possible. That should make us all want to worship, shouldn't it? Let's pray. long for us to be in your presence, especially as these lingering bits of sin seem to cling so tightly to us 
and push us away from you. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see you high and lifted up, holy and majestic, and powerful. Powerful enough not to just cleanse us of sin for the future, but cleanse us of sin even now. For those of us who are dealing with dealing with those besetting sins, Lord, that keep us from worship, help us to trust that the blood of the cross covers our shame. For those of us, Lord, who have a hard time submitting to your will and to your holiness, help us to know that the blood of Christ covers pride and will will force us in the end to submit ourselves to you one way or the other. And in all these things, Lord, let our worship be sweet, both as a sweet smell for you and as a joy for us. In Jesus' name, amen.